And now, old-timey crimey listeners, another entry in our sort of irregular series of interviews. You never know when these little surprise episodes will pop up, and here's one now. I'm interviewing independent true crime filmmaker John Borowski, and we'd like to send a special thanks to Transatlantic History Ramblings for putting us in touch with John. So here we go. You're listening to old-timey crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy, and I am here today with special guest John Borowski. Hi, John. Hi. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be on old timey crimey. Thank you so much. We are so excited to talk to you today. Uh, a little introduction for our listeners. Anybody who's not aware of you, John is known for his unflinching portrayals of serial killers like H. H. Holmes, Albert Fish, Carl Panzram, and he also has some really fascinating probing documentaries looking at true crime and serial killer culture like the sort of almost industry that has grown up around true crime which we are of course part of so meta Mm -hmm. and all of this can be found on uh, amazon prime Mm -hmm. and then you also have some books as well uh so those probably also amazon (laughs) yeah amazon's good you know and uh to be some other channels have started carrying my stuff too but yeah amazon's a pretty good go-to and my site which i can mention at the end but it's like the store.johnbrowski.com is where people could go and like buy autographed books and dvds and other uh, true crime items oh awesome yeah i'll make sure to put links to all that stuff in the show notes so people can can access your stuff really easily awesome so i just want to start off with some general questions before we dive into the specifics uh as as a person who has a true crime podcast that's, you know, historically based, I was curious, what draws you to that? How do you choose your topics and particular killers, especially the, you know, more historical ones? Usually I'm fascinated by pre-1950s serial killers, um, the tried and true detective work, the lack of forensics, um, the serial killers getting away with it for so long, which kind of actually even continued in the 70s. But I'm very interested in that early true crime period. Uh, John Wayne Gacy is my first um, biographical documentary, which I'm working on now, focusing on, you know, a more contemporary, even though that was late 70s, you know, during the 70s. And then he was apprehended 78. But yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I love those true crime, the early true crime stories, and they fascinate me. I was always fascinated by horror films when I was younger. So I thought, well, you know, this is a perfect combination of reality horror, which I call it, you know, because there, you know, there is that element of horror, but there's also history, psychology, forensics or lack of detective work. So I try and include all those elements in my film when I can, you know, to give a kind of, um, you know, an idea of what, you know, was happening at that time period or what it may have been like, which I feel, you know, a lot of documentaries don't do. They focus more on the sensationalism and gore of the story, which is okay too, you know, but uh, I want mine to give uh, more of a depth of the character and the time period they lived in. Yeah, I found your your films really good at giving the context of the the time period and the environment, which 
I feel is really important to help us better understand how these things could happen, how it could go on for so long and, and how, you know, people eventually got caught. Right. Because that's the, you know, I get a lot of questions. I was talking to a friend earlier today about Gacy and telling him some of the things. And he was like, wow, I didn't even know those things. And I'm like, well, there's, there's a lot of information and I leave no stone unturned. You know, it's, you know, again, these things are very important. It's all important to the overall feel of the story and, and, you know, the dimension of the who, what, where's and why's of, you know, these people, because I always tell people they didn't just wake up one day and decide to be a cannibal or drink blood or start, you know, murdering 33 young men, you know, this develops over time, you know, and of course, you know, that's where my film films usually go into like the psychological aspect of it. Yeah, I like that you you delve into the why and not just the what happened. There's there's so many accounts that only really touch on what could be considered sort of plot points. And that goes back to that sensationalism you were talking about. They just want to talk about the the gore or the really, you know, sensationalized stuff, but if you you really look at things in context and if you look at the the world and the person as they were growing up, you can try to understand a lot better, which I think is a lot of what we're trying to do in true crime. We just we just want to understand why people do the things they do when they're horrible. Exactly. And, you know, I, I find true crime fans to be, you know, very um, dedicated, you know, that we've heard these stories of, you know, uh, people who are not detectives or police officers starting podcasts and trying to reopen some of these old cases themselves and do the research and go to these locations and take photos. Um, you know, there's uh, Jennifer Weiss. She's doing that in New Jersey and upstate New York with the Richard Cottingham murders from the 70s. She's contacting people. She's made a web page so that if anyone has missing, you know, relatives, women during that time period, they're trying to put together this comprehensive list of all these victims of Richard Cottingham, you know, and again, these details to me are important now, like for Gacy, it's been so long since the case happened and there are a bunch of books out there, but you know, what? a lot of these books were written right after the case happened. There really hasn't been a major Gacy book other than I, I wrote one Gacy book, which has the displays files in it. But, um, you know, there hasn't been another Gacy book with all these details that have happened kind of since that time period, you know, since the case broke. So, again, I think it's up to me and, and you know, the true crime fans and shows like yours to bring the truth out there. Because, you know, us, we love all those little details. We want to know, you know, my first thing I said is I want to know the name of John Wayne Gacy's dog, because, you know, how many people care about that general public? They don't give a crap about that. But, you know, we do. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've found newspaper archives to be such an incredible resource because a lot of that stuff gets filtered out by the time it reaches the present day. And yes. you can find so many amazing little details that don't make it into, you know, your most accounts. And I, I find that those details, they give it flavor, they give it context, and, and they sort of tell us, you know, even the tiniest detail, like you said, that the name of somebody's dog. Well, it's not actually a tiny detail. A lot goes into naming a dog. It says a lot about you, you know? Exactly. And, and again, it's part of their life, you know, and that's the situation, you know, with researching newspapers, you're right. I've found lately that there might be one sentence, like you're saying, that is a detail that I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, and then what, what I've found though is, you know, and, and it, it's nothing against the people that wrote the books, but of course they want to play up their part in the case and they want to sensationalize things because I've read some books that I'm like, 
number one, where did this come from? And number two, how would they even know this? You know, so it's like, you know, there's some fabrication even in, in some of these older true crime books. But again, that's why I'm looking at it from a contemporary perspective and going back and saying, well, you know, if I can't prove these things, then, you know, they're probably not factual because I'm literally, you know, leaving no stone unturned. Yeah, every account of a case that comes out, there's that potential for them introducing something new that maybe was, you know, a pet theory or pet fact that they really clung to, but didn't really do the research to see if it had any basis in truth. And then that sort of propagates itself forward into every account that happens thereafter. Yes, yes, you're right. And that, you know, then we get these urban myths like Albert Fish shorted up the electric chair and all these, you know, these other things, which, again, it, it plays into part of the urban legends of these killers. And, you know, it just makes it more interesting because then we could have these debates, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was funny. Recently, I'd interviewed uh, someone who actually knew Gacy. And they had said, you know, I had watched the films, you know, that were made on Gacy and they got one thing wrong. They made him out to be like a this. He has this kind of a voice. But he said he was actually really feminine. He said he was he didn't have like a dark, scary voice. If anything, he was had a high, happy, joy voice. So, you know, it's different. Like you're saying, when you're talking to people themselves who either were involved with the case or knew the person versus getting this, you know, filtered down version, whether it's a book or a TV show or, a, you know, a movie. And, and these things happen. Yeah. And I guess that's probably one of the advantages of more modern uh, true crime uh, that you have access to potentially people who actually knew the victims or the killer, maybe even both, you know, detectives who, who worked on the case or their, you know, children and such. And so you can you can get a little bit more of that firsthand that you it's a lot harder to find when you get further back in time. Yeah, very much so. You know, like when I did Albert Fish, I think when I finished it, someone sent me an email and saying, oh, I just wanted to let you know that we're still out there. I'm a descendant of Albert Fish and I just wanted you to know and that's it. And I have a daughter and that was about it. He just wanted to let me know, you know, and the older cases like that, it's more, you know, like antiquated in a sense. So they're almost another time period. But, you know, when you're doing something on a more contemporary, because Gacy is my first contemporary case documentary wise, it's different. You know, it is good because you do have this, like you're saying, this accessibility to people who are alive. But then it also makes it difficult because, of course, some of those people may not want to go on camera. And I respect that, such as, you know, the relatives of the victims or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, I, I do my best with, you know, what I can find. And lately it's been going great. You know, I interviewed the prosecutor, the detectives who uh, followed him and apprehended him and took his confession. I, uh, his last attorney and uh, a whole slew of others. And I'm still filming and editing the project as well. I think John Wayne Gacy is, is a, a great choice for you after having done, you know, Pan's Ram and Fish and Holmes, because it is sort of, it's sort of straddling that line. There's that part of us, especially like I was born in the eighties and I still don't want to say, well, 1970s is history or historical, but it is, you know, it yeah. still is. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the thing. You know, as you get older, it's like, wait, you know, that was to me, it was just like yesterday. I mean, you know, I was born in the early 70s. So, you know, I I mean, I was lucky enough to experience some of that time period. But, you know, of course, I don't remember the case. I would have been like, um, I think, six years old when you know the case broke when he was arrested so i don't remember it but you know i remember hearing stories about it later but i didn't really get into true crime until 
I heard about Jeffrey Dahmer, and that was when I think I was just out of high school. And that case hit uh, my friend uh, and I, we were doing makeup effects, and his father was a detective. And what he, my friend thought was a mask catalog was the entire Dahmer file. And it had, you know, pictures of the heads in the sink and the, you know, just body parts. And it was very bad photocopies. And it also had Dahmer's um, statement, like, you know, when he was arrested about, you know, how he killed because he was lonely and he didn't want men to leave him. So that, that fascinated me. And then I read about H.H. Holmes and that's when, you know, I created the film on H.H. Holmes. But, you know, I had no knowledge too much of these serial killers, but it's interesting that I was a fan of horror films like Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, you know, you have Ed Gein, you know, that they based those loosely off his character so then you know when i re researched more serial killers and h.h H. holmes was a hit i thought well who's next and i heard about albert fish i was trying to top it you know h.h H. holmes and you know i found like there weren't films made on these serial killers and i thought wow this is a great opportunity for a niche that you know not many people have gotten into of course true crime is huge now like i think there's probably six gacy documentaries in the works there are two coming out or three in the next couple months i'm in one of them so you know it's very it's popular you know and and i see it as a good thing i do conventions and i'll have a mother and her daughter come up to my booth and the daughter might be a teenager or even younger 10 or 12 and the mother would tells me well you know we're a little worried about her she's too much interested in this stuff and i tell them no nurture that she could be a future law enforcement officer judge forensic psychologist something that can help us learn why these people are doing what they're doing yeah i think those those people who start early with the interest are much more likely to end up making a career out of it and being you know part of the the solution and part of helping us further understand what's going on behind the scenes with with serial killers and the like yeah i agree and you know it's it's especially i've, I've found that the field of forensic psychology uh, you know, I've been told that, you know, females make up the biggest demographic for true crime. And I've been told it's because they're just interested and, you know, they want to find out more. And it's also interesting that many forensic psychologists are female. So I think that's a great field, you know, for many young women to look into if they're interested in this, you know, type of thing, true crime or the inner workings of the criminal mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I want Catherine Ramsland, you know, she's great. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Um, Catherine Ramsland, I know I've heard that name before, but I can't connect it. Like, if you've ever seen any of these cable shows, she's on it. Forensic psychologist. She has blonde hair. Um, I interviewed her in Albert Fish and Pan's Ram. But, yeah, she's phenomenal. She, she like, I don't know, she has dozens of books out there. But, yeah, if, if, if you or anyone else haven't heard of her, look into her. She's amazing. Her work is phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why her name was familiar. I've probably seen, I saw her in yours and probably several others. Yes. Oh yeah. She's, a, she's one of those where like, wait, I've seen her so many times. Now I wanted to ask, so like I said, your, your films are really unflinching. You don't, you don't look away from the rough stuff that can be kind of difficult for maybe more squeamish viewers. How do you, is that ever hard to deal with on a personal level? You know, I, I do get asked that often and it's, it's hard for me to equate it, but I don't, I don't think it does. I mean, after a while, yes, like for instance, um, uh, you know, researching is one thing and then actually seeing physical things are another. So there was a time when I was researching the Gacy case 
And then I went to interview Jason Moran. He's the lieutenant who's in charge of uh, the identifying the last six unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy. So when I went to his office, though, it was really in the warehouse where they keep a lot of these items. And he had one of the um, gravestones that they all say we remembered and they have the date of when they buried the unidentified victims. And he had some large posters of, uh, you know, like the one that he, one of the two he did identify already. And that's when it hits you because you're seeing these gravestones and it's somber and you're talking to somebody who's involved with, you know, these bodies and identifying and, and, you know, dead people's property. And, you know, it's just, that's when it hits me, you know, the reality of it, when it sits in, like now I'm editing the confession and the excavation part of the documentary. And it's just, you know, when you're hearing these things and reading, you know, and seeing the pictures and reading about it, it's, it's, it's easy for me to like, okay, I'm just technical about it. But then, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it 24 seven, you know, there are times where I definitely take breaks and, you know, watch some Disney movies or play Mario Brothers. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's it's important to take those breaks. And th those are two very good ways of doing it, I'd say. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, it, it happens. But you know, I think because of the fact that I had when I was younger, I started with the universal horror films, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, then graduated to the slashers. And, you know, so I mean, I was always into that stuff. You know, I could watch all those beheadings and all that stuff in movies. But you know, it, it is different with these cases, their reality. But to me, I'm, I, you know, I think I'm just, you know, kind of immune to that. But it does get to me at times. Yeah. Now, you, like I said, you're known for the, the unflinching. Is there ever, has there ever been a time when you've had to think twice about including a detail? I mean, even if it had eventually made the cut, was there ever something that made you say, well, maybe I should leave this out? Um, with Gacy, I'm, Going through that, you know, because I, I want to carefully, you know, walk that line, um, you know, I don't want to be exploitative, but I do want to provide details and get the information out there. So that's always the thin point. You know, when we screened Albert Fish for the first time, when I lived in L.A., we screened it on Hollywood Boulevard. And while the film was showing, this couple walked out and they said they couldn't take it. To me, that was the biggest you know, credit to, to my work, because if it could affect someone that makes sense, it's emotional. So whether they like it, don't like it, they walk out in disgust, something worked. And it's interesting when you watch Albert Fish, the film I made, if you turn the volume down, there are some images and sequences where you're just watching the kind old man cooking a stew or baking a stew in the oven. But it's when you turn the audio on, and that's when people told me that the audio sometimes disturbed them more than the visuals, because you put the combination of Albert Fish talking about eating a little girl being a cannibal, and you put that over the image of his, this old man cooking, that's when it really impacts people. But, you know, again, I want my films to be emotional. I want it to be a roller coaster ride, and that's what I believe separates me from other documentaries or true crime television shows where it's more of an emotional ride it's an experience whereas it's just not this information being thrown at you but i want people to feel you know a little scared at times or understanding at times and you know as much as as best as i can with a documentary form you know without a narrative form yeah i was very <laughs> impressed by you were able to still make me kind of uh flinch and, and squirm a little bit with the Albert Fish, even though, I mean, we did a two-parter on 
Albert Fish because, and it wasn't necessarily for time, although that was a, a factor, but it, it was mostly we got to a certain point and we were like, that's enough for one day. We can't can't talk about this anymore without psychologically damaging ourselves. So yeah, I was definitely, I was still like, oh, because you add those visuals in there along with the audio of him talking and, you know, people talking about the things he did. And it just, it's it's so complete in its its pure horror well thank you and you know that was released in like 2007 i think and you know at that time it was a little racy you know but you know when you watch what's on tv now versus that it's tame you know i mean i do show some shots of albert fish you know whipping uh, a younger guy and whipping himself self-flagellating and some other scenes but you know for that i thought it was important to push the envelope because i wanted to f- people to feel not only Fish's victim's pain, but the pain he exerted on himself. You know, and now with Gacy, I'm walking that line too, you know, having some reenactments, but, you know, you can't, you know, have a Gacy, you know, you, you can't replicate him. So I just have, I'm careful on, you know, what I'm showing, but, you know, I do have documents to work with. I have um, photographs. I have locations, obviously, being in Chicago, filming all the locations. So, you know, it's definitely coming together. Excellent. Now, actually, I wanted to talk about uh, your first serial killer film was H.H. Holmes, America's First Serial Killer. So that ties together nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the case for just a synopsis for any of our, you know, listeners who haven't heard about it or, you know, are fuzzy on the details as well as like what inspired you to start there? Sure. Yeah, H.H. Holmes was, he wasn't really too well known by the time I had released my film. But around the time I released my film, there was a book called Devil in the White City. So people may be familiar with that book. But Holmes basically operated in the 1880s, 1890s in Chicago. And he wound up designing and building this huge building, three floors and a basement. He had shops on the first floor. He would rent rooms out on the other floors during the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And he had his office in that building. And then Holmes, uh, you know, uh, boarded up the building and uh, went on this cross-country insurance scam, wound up killing his partner and three of his kids. And eventually his trial was a trial of the century. But they eventually went back in the building in Chicago, and that's when they found trap doors they found a torture table a machine that would stretch people out um they really didn't find holmes was good at concealing his evidence they didn't find they saw they found blood but they couldn't you know say it was human at that time period because blood typing was so you know in its infancy at that time um it's just a fascinating case holmes was really a master criminal master swindler all of his murders were money-based he saw people as money signs and what he could get from them i'm sure when he got involved with his partner benjamin peitzel he thought well this guy's an alcoholic one day you know i'm sure he'll come in handy and he was the one he murdered and three of his kids it's a it's a sad case but holmes would murder men women or children he didn't care anything for money but he's kind of like the godfather of serial killers because there were serial killers in america before holmes but none of them had as huge of a major trial as Holmes. So, you know, it'd be a boring film title if it's called America's First Documented Serial Killer. You know, but he was, he's really, when you think of serial killers, Holmes is really the first major, you know, serial killer that was put on the map. Many other serial killers after him, including Albert Fish and BTK, 
talk about Holmes. The Dennis Rader BTK wanted to be H.H. Holmes, and H.H. Holmes was one of his heroes, and that's how I got involved in the BTK case because uh, they subpoenaed my records for everyone in Wichita who bought my Holmes film when the BTK resurfaced around 2004. But yeah, Holmes was really a master criminal, um, you know, and just uh, he was his own attorney at his trial, much like Ted Bundy was later, uh, you know, in time. So, you know, you look at the groundwork, literally, that Holmes, you know, did with this building. And eventually the building was torn down and there's a post office in its place. But, you know, there's a lot more to the story. But, you know, I would, you know, point people to my film on Amazon and the book Strange Case of Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. Oh, and then you asked another question, how I got involved making it, how I began making it. When I was in uh, college, I was doing a Chicago history project, and there was a book, and in this book, talked about the Holmes Castle, and that fascinated me. But then I read Harold Schechter's book on H.H. Holmes, and that really fleshed out Holmes more than just a madman that made these, you know, torture chambers and secret rooms with gas lines where he could gas his guests. So I thought, wow, this is fascinating because he had three wives at the same time. You know, he had these businesses. He was his own attorney. Now this is a fascinating story because, again, he's not just a crazed murderer. He was an evil genius. And that really propelled me to make the film, plus the fact that no one had made a film on H.H. H. Holmes. The book prior to Devil in the White City was The Torture Doctor, and that was out in the 70s. That book was found on Dr. Harold Shipman's shelf. Um, the serial killer. So uh, Holmes was kind of forgotten by history until Eric Larson resuscitated him. And then my film came out around the same time, unplanned. I had no idea. And it's it's my top seller. It's won many awards. And it's uh, the film has been around the world. I, I travel around the United States. And when I tell people I make serial killer films, they say, oh, yeah, you know, I saw that one on H.H. H. Holmes. I said, That's my film. And then he's like, yeah, you made that? that? That was on Netflix. It's on Amazon. So it's just interesting, you know, that, to to know that people have seen this work pretty much all around the world. I love that Harold Schechter was one of your entry points there. Uh, I, I just love Harold Schechter's work. We've used him as a source so many times. He just does, he writes such fantastic books. Yeah, he is phenomenal. You know, his Holmes book, his Fish book really helped me. And I'm also, I've had a project in development on Jesse Pomeroy, and I've already interviewed Harold Schechter about that. And, uh, you know, so that's in the works for the future. But yeah, Schechter is just phenomenal. His mind is like an encyclopedia. I, I lose track of some details. He does too. But man, I mean, you know, I had him on, you know, a, a show I did recently too, and it was just amazing. Yeah, he's great. You know, he, it, again, you get Schechter and Ramsland and some of these other experts, you know, whether they're true crime experts, writers, historians, or forensic psychologists, it's it's phenomenal. I, I was telling my friend the other day, I would love to go to one of those conventions. I'm sure you would too, where, you know, Dr. Lee is there and all these experts and forensics, and I would just love to go and just be a fly on a wall. <laughs> Yeah, I would be just in awe, you know, just just make sure I keep my mouth shut so I don't sound stupid and just listen to everything they right. say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They'd say all oh, your to me, they tell oh, you're just a filmmaker. I'd say, well, that's fine. No, they wouldn't. They're they're all great people. And, and you know, and they know they we all need each other because, you know, they, they have their professional work, too. But, you know, we do help promote them and talk about their works and have them on our shows. And and, you know, it, again, I see it as a full circle. We all kind of help each other and work together when we can. One question I had, because you, you mentioned Holmes being, you know, he really was this evil genius. 
I felt like he really, he seemed to take advantage of the circumstances of his time. It was, it was really easy to get real estate and do construction without too many records, which allowed him to, you know, build all these weird little, you know, secret rooms and passageways and such. And then there was the influx of people to Chicago around the time of the World's Fair. It was easier to get life insurance and pull a scam there. You had the cadavers selling them to medical students. Snake oil, even. He got into that. (laughs) Yep. Right. And that's the thing. Holmes did use the limitations of the time period to his advantage. And you have to be somewhat of a genius to know not only the law, but how to get around it. And that's kind of why Holmes and Gacy are very similar to me. But you're right. Holmes knew that at, and you're talking 1880s and 90s. I mean, there was no such thing as social security numbers or driver's license. So whenever he crossed the state lines, he just made up another name, you know, and, and he knew that and you're correct. And that's how he got away with it. And, uh, and he would, that's why he was that genius and criminal mastermind. It was his life's work, really. You know, some of these people, it is their life's work. You know, Gacy's life's work was, you know, doing what he did to 33 victims. It's sad to say, but that's what they were almost in a sense born for. That's how I see it when you look at it in that philosophical way. It's kind of sad, but as long as we can learn lessons from these things and, you know, uh, try and change things in the future. And they did. I mean, you look at Holmes, like you said, well, did they have code enforcement during that time? Maybe they didn't. But if they did, come on, it's the Chicago way. He just paid them off. We all know that. So, you know, it, it's there are more details that, you know, some people have a lot of questions. But what I've learned recently, too, is that there are the facts in the case that sometimes you don't find until you research the nitty gritty versus, you know, just the the overlying sensationalism of it, you know, so... I, I like to do this thought experiment where we take someone from that time, especially somebody like H.H. H. Holmes, who really seemed of the moment in his crimes, and transplant them somewhere else, like, say, the 90s. And I wonder what they would have done. Would, would they have been able to, to pull off not even necessarily something similar, but to take advantage of circumstances there? Or was this just a case of, like, the wrong person, at least for everyone around him, existing at kind of the right time for him? Right. Yeah, I agree. That would be an interesting case study if we could do some time travel. But of course, you know, we look at people like Ed Gein and Albert Fish. Ed Gein would ask, where's the nearest uh, cemetery? And Fish would ask, where's the nearest children's playground? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You're right about that. (laughs) Right. They would would go to their work where they're like, okay, well, I'm somewhere else, but I know I want to eat children and and wear, you know, women's skin. So it's like, you know, I think they would know that. But that's a very interesting, you know, uh, experiment. I think H.H. Holmes would probably still build the murder castle. It just wouldn't be in Chicago. It would have to be somewhere out of the way. Well, you know, he was starting to build a second one in Texas after he left Chicago um, because one of the women, I don't know if it was Georgiana Yoke, they had left him some money or property. Of course, they, you know, he would get his mistresses to sign property or money to him and then he killed them and have them sign letters or notes saying that they're going away or whatever, you know, who knows, maybe tortured them or forced them to do that. But um, he didn't seem he, you know, Holmes was a very hands-off serial killer. He killed in waves like gassing and burning. You know, he wasn't too much of a hands-on. I think his enjoyment was the planning, you know, the preparation and figuring out how he was going to get one over on these people. And then, of course, the money afterwards. (laughs) 
Oh, of course. Yeah, that's the cherry on top, right? You know, for him, I think it was the dirty work was the death, you know, killing him. It was just that that I think he didn't like, you know, uh, because, you know, you don't I don't see him as like the sexual, you know, predator who's he didn't seem that way to me, although it was kind of alluded to. But, you know, again, over time, it was alluded. He may have done something with one of the Peitzel girls. But, you know, I, I don't. I don't, I kind of don't believe that in a sense, but because he didn't seem that kind of criminal to me, you know, you see, you know, some of these serial killers that they're obvious sexual predators, whereas some, you know, aren't. And even within those sexual predators, like Albert Fish said, he, uh, you know, achieved sexual gratification from hearing the children screaming. So it wasn't the murdering part. It, it was the torturing, you know, and, and, the, and the sounds that excited him. Uh, that actually, uh, you said you, you don't know whether you believe or don't really believe that he committed the, the sexual assault. I'm curious as to his published confession where he actually like came out and said, I did this, this, this and that. How much of that do you think is accurate or do you think that he might have just decided to just mess with people? I think the majority of that is accurate. I think he confessed to eventually like 31 or something. I forget the number, but um yeah, I think it's pretty accurate, although one of the people he had named, I think it was the guy that he said he walled up, he, he you know, bricked him into a wall and like walled him like a Edgar Allan Poe story, you know, um, but that guy came forward and said, um, I'm alive, but I think Holmes did kill those people, but I think he may have killed so many that he forgot or didn't know who that was and just took someone else's name in the confession and threw it in there, but he probably did kill the real person. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that, as Schechter says he thinks he killed around nine. I think probably around nine to a dozen. People think hundreds, dozens, but this guy was so busy. I mean, when would he find the time? You know, I mean, he's running this hotel. He has three wives. He has mistresses. You know, he's got other properties. I, You know, I, I think, you know, he, he was just a money opportunist in that way, serial killer. You're definitely right about him being, uh, he was quite the multitasker. He could he could really get things done. And it, it's unfortunate that he applied himself in such a hor horrific manner. Right. He could have been a great guy. You know, he, he modeled himself after, you know, the greats like Carnegie and Rockefeller. But come on, you know, he, he went in the other direction. He just wanted to, you know, get what he wanted in, in any means possible and, you know, even death. And usually it was, but, you know, there were people he scammed, which he didn't murder, which were over real estate and properties. And, you know, he had many cons and scams going. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Albert Fish, uh, your film on him is Albert Fish in Sin, He Found Salvation, which I think really, really gets to the heart of some of the stuff we're going to talk about. You want to give a quick rundown of, of the case there? Yes, Albert Fish is most well known for writing a letter to one of his victim's mother about four to six years after he had taken their child. And in the letter, he described how he remembered picking the girl up from their apartment and uh, he lied to them and he was going to take their daughter to a party and he took her to upstate New York and found this abandoned house where he took his clothes off, strangled her to death, cut her pieces up, and then buried some pieces on that property and then took some home with him. And he described how he cooked it, made a stew out of it, and prepared it in the oven. And this letter was sent to the girl's mother. 
that's what he's most well known for. Um, Albert Fish, and he looked like a kind grandfatherly figure. You know, he was at that time period, uh, you know, he was, I, I believe, in his 50s or 60s, but he always looked older. So he always looked like this old man. And Albert Fish wasn't a genius, but he was uh, he was a great con man in a sense where, you know, he would know how to, you know, say the right things in order to con that family to let him take their daughter to this party after only meeting them twice. But, you know, he lived a life of Albert Fish started in an orphanage. Uh, I think he said he had his first sex feeling at age seven where he was forced to watch other kids being whipped. And then he was whipped as well. And that's when he began enjoying S&M because he enjoyed watching it and having it done to him. And then he started wanting to do it to other people. You know, and we see this in many serial killers that, it, you know, it may not be an abuse, but it could be a trauma or something that they experienced or witnessed at, at an early age. And Albert Fish, his life all goes back to that orphanage, just like Carl Panzram with the um, the reform school he was in. And uh, then after that, Albert Fish got married and he had kids and grandkids and everything seemed fine because he seemed a kind old man and he would never swear or never hurt his children or grandchildren in any way. But there were strange signs. His son would find him beating himself bloody with a nail studded paddle. Um, you know, he was into the self-flagellation. There were times where he thought he was Jesus. Albert Fish had a religious complex where he took the Bible and elements of the Bible literally, like the story of Abraham and Isaac. He saw that he was kind of the Abraham figure when he would murder these children. He thought he was saving them before they become violated. That's why when he, I don't know if I could swear on here. Oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that's why when, when Albert Fish wrote the letter to the mother, he said, I did not fuck her. And that was very important because, you know, at, in the Bible, you know, that's what it's about. It's, you know, here's a child. He didn't rape her. It's all about, you know, uh, you know, the association with, you know, sex and outside of marriage and being a child. So that was very important to him as a religious person to say he didn't fuck her. Okay. I killed her, which is okay. And, you know, we know some religions think, you know, being gay is, you know, worse than being a murderer. So, you know, there are all these thoughts in his head. Like he is so Albert Fish associated, you know, his cannibalism of little children and vampirism with uh, communion. So he thought it was eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. He would have visions of St. Sebastian with arrows in him. So he, he really, you know, took the Bible literally, but in, you know, an evil way, kind of like Holmes did with his, you know, business mind. And uh, yeah, Albert Fish, you know, I, I see it as a sad story because he, you know, tortured himself a lot too. And he had some sort of, um, you know, he, he, his soul was suffering in a sense that he had to do these things, but, uh, eventually he was apprehended by great detective work, which they traced a, a letter head on that envelope that he sent to the mother and, uh, the oldest man ever executed at Sing Sing prison. And the, the big urban myth is that he shorted out the electric chair because when he was apprehended at first, he told police he would punish himself as penance for killing children. They didn't believe him. They took him to hospital and they took an x-ray of his abdomen. And on this x-ray, I sell it on my store, on my website, uh, transparency that you could hold up to the light. It's a reproduction, but it looks great. So on this x-ray, you could see 12 needles inside of him. Some look like they're three or four inches long. 
that were still stuck inside him. So the big urban myth was that he shorted out the electric chair, which he didn't. Yeah, but it's an absolutely horrific thing just to think of someone doing that to themselves. It's it's it's, he, it's rough. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially you know when you think of where he stuck it. You know, he stuck these needles up in the perineum area. You know, between the uh, scrotum and the anal. It's like I mean, he did a lot worse things. He would you know take uh, gauze-soaked alcohol pads, stick them up his anus, and light them. He would take rose stems with the thorns on them and insert them into his penis. Even talking about it <laughs> just makes me like cringe, you know. But, you know, it was never enough for him. But, you know, when and fish and panzram are the same in that way where even panzram said it, once pain gets to a certain threshold, you know, it, it doesn't exist anymore. So you, they're always trying to look for the next either pain doesn't bother them like panzram. You know, he wouldn't care or Albert Fish, who was always on the search for something more extreme and more painful, whether it's him committing someone committing it on him. He would place ads in the newspapers, you know, trying to woo uh, women and others into this S&M fantasies with him. Now, you mentioned the, the, the religious aspects, at least in, in his mind, the associations that he made. And then there, there was also definitely, obviously, a, a sexual aspect to some of that and, and sadomasochism. I'm wondering, do you think one of those held more weight than the other in, in driving his actions? Or were they just inextricably connected and you, you couldn't remove one from the other? I think for him, it was all connected. You know, I think it was just a jumble of because he would even have visions, you know, um, of Christ or, you know, or at least he said he did, you know, or angels and things. So, you know, I, I do think he was mentally ill, but we all know that, you know, people want justice and revenge. So that's kind of why they executed him. I mean, you know, when you have someone who at the time they called them perversions, you know, now we, we call them, you know, disorders. But at the time, they had to create new perversions just for Albert Fish because there were more than he, he, he had more of these perversions that were on the records. So like in the book that I published, Albert Fish's um, files uh, that I, it's on Amazon. It's, um, it's Albert Fish. It is old words. But, you know, it, it's fascinating when you're reading this account of everything that he did. It's it's almost unbelievable. Some And those are the cases that I'm most interested in, like the extreme psychological cases. I, I don't, you know, hold anything against the victims of, say, Keith Jesperson. You know, they're very important. His story is. But to me, it's just not as interesting. A trucker, you know, killing prostitutes, throwing off the side of the road. In numbers, whereas to me, more interesting uh, case would be like Albert Fish or Ed Gein, you know, whereas it's this very strong psychological component combined with, like you're saying, these fantasies. Um, yeah, it, and those, you know, because to me, I get so deep into like their psychology. Uh, it's it's just fascinating. And now a quick word from our friends at the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour podcast. Looking for your next true crime podcast binge? Do you love all things crime, cult, and controversy? Check out the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour. Every week, the girls research and pick apart juicy topics from alluring cult leaders to cold cases to human trafficking to cannibalism and more in our multidisciplinary think tank over drinks. Sometimes we even call in the experts. So grab your juice and tune into the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay juicy.
It's interesting to think of the psychologist who would have been reading about that case at the time and been like, all right, let's get the pen and paper out. we got to write a whole new book. Yeah, just imagine that, you know, because, again, you're talking, you know, the 19, uh, you know, 30s. And it's like, you know, imagine now we're kind of immune to a lot of this. But back then they had it in the newspapers and that was about it. Like you don't hear about Albert Fish again, I think, until Schechter's book, because it was just so nasty. And to me personally, people say, well, what's what do you think is the worst? Well, Albert Fish, I think, is like that macabre song, the worst fish in the sea. I think to me, you know. Because all of the elements, the fact that he tortured himself, that there were children involved, small children, you know, uh, that to me, I think, you know, to me, is like tops the serial killer worst list to me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He's he's best just, of the worst. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. I was curious what what factored into some some storytelling decisions you made. Like with Albert Fish, there's there's so many different entry points in the narrative. I mean, you could start with him you know, growing up and, and, and having those first, you know, sexual feelings, you could start with when, you know, his wife left him and that seemed, you know, he seemed to just break and decide that he could go ahead and be bad. Your choice was the the moment when he kidnapped Grace Budd and these these very evocative images uh, that, that play out of him, you know, walking across the street with her. And I was wondering what, what factored into your decision to, to start at that point? Yeah, that's that's great. You, you know, you actually watched it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I did not. I did doubt you, but you know, some don't. But you know, it's um because H. H. Holmes, I told pretty much chronologically, and with these cases, it, it somehow it's almost normal to tell chronologically. Some you do have to, I think, to get a sense of, you know, what you want to achieve by the end. You, you know. So, you know, it just depends on how you want to show your viewers what at, at what point in the film. And with Elber Fish, I think I did start chronologically. But then, you know, to me, it, it made a lot more sense to kind of, especially for Fish's story, to open it with, um, you know, what the public knew at the time. And they knew that, you know, obviously, you know, when he was arrested, when the case broke and hit the news. So I thought, OK, you know, this would be a good entry point into kind of showing the worst that Albert Fish did. And now let's go back to the beginning of his life and show you how he got to this point. Because I thought that would be more effective because at the beginning you're like, wow, this is just so awful. Uh, how would this old man do that? And why? So again, you know, and that's what I find a lot with these stories. You know, when I tell people or they hear about a certain aspect of these cases, they want to know more, you know, and, and years ago when I first started telling people about this stuff, they were a little shy at first, like, oh, you, you make films on those. Oh, but then an hour later, they still want to talk. <laughs> you know, No, tell me more about the old man with the kids and what did he do and the guy that built the house, you know. So, um, yeah, I think we're just fascinated by those cases. And, and for Fish, it made sense for me to start at that point and then go back and see, you know, what created him. Yeah, I think for for viewers, readers, listeners, whatever, you know, format you're, you're presenting material in, the, the best thing to, to drive them along a narrative is, is, I think, one of two questions, either what happened or why. And generally, I think the chronological uh question is you know the what happened you know you start right. at the beginning and then you're like so the, what drives the the person who's in, interacting with this material is okay you know what happened that we're starting in somebody's childhood where do they go what do they do it's going to be bad i know right. <laughs> and and like you said with with starting with the moment when he kidnaps grace bud that gets to the why of the question which i think honestly is 
when we can do it as as storytellers, it's not it's not always feasible or the best choice. But when we can do it, I think it is so much the the better uh, question because it is a lot of the reason that we're so fascinated by all this, the why of it, and it's not necessarily the what happened. That's the surface level. The why is deeper. Exactly. Yeah, and and kind of that. I've kind of got my Gacy film structured similarly now, but you know, that may change of course, cause I'm still editing it, but starts off with the, uh, you know, disappearance of Rob peace, his last victim. And that's kind of like that Albert fish, you know, story. Whereas, but then, you know, for Panzram, um, you know, I had, uh, you know, did the same thing in a sense, you know, where I had started with the, you know, relationship between the guard and Panzeram. So, you know, it, it seems to work that way, you know, b- because here's the other thing, too. You know, with H.H. Holmes, when you've got a hook at the beginning and you're just talking about, you know, the torture chambers and all this stuff, you've got the audience. But with some of this stuff, you know, my worry is if you just start with their childhood, they may get kind of bored. You know what I'm saying? A little into it. So if you could grab them in a, in the beginning and make them want to know more or see more, you know, then, you know, I think you've got them. So, you know, it just it depends. You know, it's all it's for each film. You know, it. I say it always speaks to me and tell me tells me, you know, what it should be. That's why I never have lengths in mind. It's like it'll be done when it's done and it'll be as long as it's going to be. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been trying to challenge myself a little bit more lately because I know I rely too much on the, the instinct to go chronological. And so finding that other entry point, that's why when, when I was watching the, the Albert Fish film, I was like, oh, he started there. Interesting, because <laughs> I really yeah, need that, to get better at that. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's the fun part about it, too, because, you know, like you said, there are many different entry points that you could, you know, uh, you know, start with. And, and it would just depend on, you know, where you're going with the story. But, yeah, it, that's that's when that's kind of the fun for me when I plan it. And then when I'm working on my final cut where, you know, everything's really coming together and it's looking really good, you know, now it's just like whatever it is, I think it's like a six hour timeline I'm working with now, but you know, everything's kind of in there. Like if you'd watch it, you know, you'd see all these things, but it's so rough. It's just interviews, some photos and stuff thrown in there, but you know, and that's like, I'm sculpting it little by little. So. All right. So let's talk about the Carl Panzram, the spirit of hatred and vengeance. Now this is actually the, the one out of your, your serial killer series that. Old Timey Crimey has not covered yet. So we're going to have to do that sometime soon. And uh, you will absolutely show up in the sources. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. You know, and I'd love to be on again. Believe me, we could do a whole show on just one of these guys, you know, in the future. You could have me on. I'm more than happy. But yeah, Pan's Fram was interesting. Uh, the meanest man that ever lived. The most hated uh, person that hated himself in the world and everyone in it. Uh, you know, he had a rough childhood. Um and he wound up in a reform school where he burned down the shed because they were abusing the kids in there. He, he had this idea of vengeance and revenge because of how he was abused in all these American prisons and jails. So he said he started killing as revenge and told wild stories of going to Africa and killing Africans and feeding them the crocodiles and said he killed 26 or whatever. Um, uh, but then he arrives to Washington, D.C. jail where he's abused yet again like all the other 
jails and prisons. But there was a young jail guard named Henry Lesser who befriended him and would sneak him paper and pencil to write his life story. And he said, people should know about your life because maybe they could learn something from this, like how not to become you. So that worked for a while. And Panzram wrote his whole autobiography and they stayed friends even after Panzram transferred to Leavenworth. But while at Leavenworth, um, Panzram said, I'll kill the first person who messes with me, which he did. He killed the laundry foreman who would taunt him and make fun of him. And he beat him over the head with the iron bar and Panzram got the death penalty because even before he killed that guard, he was writing to his friend, Henry Lesser saying, I've got a plan on how I'm going to get out of this world. Panzram wanted to die. He tried to kill himself, but they you stopped him in jail before he did. And so he made the state of Kansas kill him. <laughs> he, he brought about his own death by the state by killing that laundry foreman. He planned it. He knew what would happen. He knew the law just as well as any other lawyer at that time period because he had been in all these jails and prisons. Fascinating person, and they actually executed him at Leavenworth, uh, the first prisoner executed in a federal penitentiary. Um, just a fascinating story, um, you know, because this guy, when you read his story, and I have a book called Panzeram at Leavenworth, which fills in a lot of what the first book didn't, um, when you read his life story, he's, uh, kind of funny at times. He, you know, is like a jester. He's serious. He knows, uh, the court system laws, prisons, jails, um, a very intelligent man for only having a sixth grade education. Very interesting story. Yeah. I can't remember who it was that he referenced in the film. He referenced somebody from the Spanish Inquisition, but the name is slipping my mind. And I was just, oh yeah, I, Torquemada. That's it. I knew it started with Torque and I couldn't fin finish it off. Yeah. Yeah. I was <laughs> yeah. So, so impressed by that. You don't normally get that from somebody with who, you know, like left education at, at sixth grade. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I have a master's degree and I wouldn't reference Torquemada. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm saying, you know, and, and not only is he intelligent, but he knows how to be sly with his humor when he would, you know, rape men when he was riding these rails, that was normal at the time period. So he was raping all these guys as revenge because he was raped by hobos when he was a kid riding the rails. And he said he, he had more sex than Oscar Wilde did. So, you know, it's like he knows about Oscar Wilde. He knows that, you know, he's having anal sex and, and you know, just the, Again, the intelligence, but yet to be funny about it at the same time. It's like, man, of all these people that I've researched, I would like to sit down with Panzram and have a beer. I just think it would be an amazing experience, you know, just to talk to the guy. Yeah, it's it's another case of if he had been able to take a different path, uh, I think the system kind of in its own way condemned him to the path he went on, although we all we still all make our own choices, but there's a there's a right, you know, confluence there. But I, yeah. I think of all those people, you know, it's the same with H.H. H. Holmes. If, if he'd been able to go in a different direction, what could he have contributed to the world? You know, he could have perhaps been a great, a great writer. I agree. And, you know, I always tell people and, and I believe this. They, now they kind of scoff or smirk at it because it is still so recent. But I believe Dahmer could have been a great surgeon. That's what he wanted to do. And that's what he did in the privacy of his own apartment. He just wanted to be, see the insides of people's bodies. I mean, I think, you know, if he, when he was a kid, if he, that was nurtured and pushed in the right direction, instead of totally being ignored by his parents, he could, he could have been a surgeon, you know? So again, we never know. There's always those what ifs, but it's always interesting to think back. 
And then with Panzram's childhood, he does seem to place a lot of blame for how he turned out on his being sent to sort of that that old timey juvie, I guess, the the prison school farms, essentially, that they had for kids who were misbehaving. Well, you know, that's the thing. A lot of the there are some of these serial killers that will blame, you know. (laughs) I mean, they'll blame a fly on the wall, you know, I mean, that's why I respected Dahmer because he said, here's what I did. Here's who I did it to. Here were the dates. Here's everything I did and told the truth. But, you know, it uh, with Panzram, you know, it's uh, it was really difficult to tell, you know, what was the truth and wasn't. Um, Personally, I don't think he killed all those people. I think he knew that he was going to Leavenworth, which was a tough place. He knew that he was writing this stuff to Lesser. He knew that the word would get out there. But, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But um, uh, I think I got away from that topic. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, he the problem with Panzram was he was the last child born of a large family. I think there were five or six other brothers and sisters. Then the father left. So here's a mother alone on a, working on a farm. Of course, Panzram's the youngest, so he's going to want attention while everyone else is working all day and night. So he's going to do things to act it out. He broke into a neighbor's house, stole the gun at 12 years old, and that's what he got sent to the reform school for. At that time, reform schools, yes, they were like the Dickensian, you know, they were very scary places. He said they had a paint shop that they would take the kids to. And they called it paint shop because they would come out black and blue. So obviously, you know, abuse was a natural form for all ages of criminals during that time period and to keep them in order. And, you know, there's one punishment slip of Panzram's, like many of these serial killers. I, I Sometimes I see it going back to that one point. And Panzram had one punishment slip that basically told what the rest of his life was going to be. And it said, attempted to escape. And the punishment was, has a spanking. So here's his cycle of doing something bad, being put in an institution, and then being abused over and over and over again. That was his entire life right there on that one piece of paper. Yeah, I think one of the the hardest parts of your film was his escape attempt where I believe he tried to climb like a 30-foot wall, something like that. Oh, yeah, that was bad. That was at Danamora. And, you know, when I went there to film, of course, they had permission, but they still stopped me every change of guard. And they have a 30-foot wall above ground and 30-foot wall below ground so no one could tunnel under. But Panzram would find this uh, fencing material around the... the, um, you know, uh, outside in the prison yard and he takes some of it and he wound up building this ladder. So he threw this makeshift ladder up that wall, but the ladder broke before he could get over the wall and he fell, you know, who knows how many feet, but it, you know, he said he was ruptured and his ankles were broke and they just threw him in a cell without any medical attention as, you know, assigned to other inmates that this will happen to you too. But those are scary, tough places. When I was there, it was snowing. It was just like Siberia. I mean, it was that wall, seemed to go on for miles, you know, very, very frightening place. But, um, yeah, Panzram had a really tough time there. That's where his hatred really grew the entire world. That's when he started imagining creating wars between nations and, you know, putting a gas bomb inside a a train tunnel and then uh, shooting everybody and stealing all their valuables. I mean, he was really going off the rails there. But, you know, I mean, you could kind of see, you know, what, all these tortures had done to him. When you think about drowning, electrocuting, you know, all these things that they did to him, you know, throughout, I mean, he was a bad guy too, of course, but you know, man, it's, uh, you know, uh, 
might doesn't always make right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's it's he did a lot of horrible things to people, but he also had a lot of horrible things done to him, and I think that's part of why it makes it so difficult to watch. We want to hate. We want to get revenge and justice and feel satisfied by it. If we can't know why, we at least want to know that it's it's, you know, over. And but this is so much more complex than that because you do have this system that really helped his development into this, you know, person who could commit atrocities on people and then who had even bigger ambitions for more atrocities. And it just feels like it was you know, it, it it makes it harder to hate him. <laughs> right. Well, I know. And that's somebody, you know, I went to a convention and someone kind of, you know, abruptly said, did you expect me to feel sorry for Panzram? I said, no, I would hope that you would understand. That's that's what I do with my films. I just want people to understand, you know, not feel sorry for them, not like them. You know, they're despicable people. I'll mention, you know, I know that too. But like with Panzram, though, you know, again, when you get to the nitty gritty, anyone could say they killed 20 something people. But where's the proof? You know, there were there were supposedly several witnesses that saw him with a young child. But we all know witnesses. You can't count on 100 percent. He said he killed all these guys in Africa. Well, we can't prove that because if we if he did, they're in crocodiles' bellies. So it's like, hmm, wouldn't that be an interesting aspect of the story that this guy was tortured and created to be a monster just for stealing things from houses? Yeah, I'm curious how how reliable of a narrator do you think he is? Because he's one of, another one of those cases where we have a lot of his I don't know if you want to call it confessions or just his narrative uh, from from his you know own pen. But how how much of that can we trust? I think the majority, because, you know, he did, there were some things that I was able to verify. Like he said, he had that mastoid operation behind his left ear. And there was, when I saw the records for when he was admitted to Red Wing, the reform school, there was a notation scar behind left ear. So I do think that the majority of what he, you know, uh, said was true, but I don't think, uh, I, I do also think he did go to Africa, but I don't think he murdered uh, those people. You know, it's like uh, there's that one point in the film where I think Ramsland or, or another expert states that, well, we can't prove what he did, but we can't disprove it either. So that's the case we're at, you know, when you when you have, you know, six or eight Africans that he said he killed. Well, you know, there's no way you can verify that. So. You know, with him, he's he's still a mystery. But a, a lot of what he said, you know, I, I do believe was true. You know, I think he puffed himself up a lot, but I do think a lot was true. You know, he did break into a prison. He did get, get, get in. He was trying to rescue someone out. But, you know, I mean, how tough or a tough guy can you get than that? You know, broke into a prison. Yeah, actually broke in the place that everybody's trying to get yeah. out of, including himself. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so, yeah, it's, you know, that's that's the thing, too you got to walk these war waters and that's what I'm doing with Gacy. It's like, well, what's the truth and what, what isn't, and, you know, when they said he, Gacy was given the lie detector test in Waterloo, he said the only thing he got right was his name. Huh? Wow. <laughs> so it's hard to, what do you believe then with Gacy? I don't believe anything so far. I don't have uh, Gacy's voice in my film. Cause someone asked, well, are you going to do that? Cause in all your other ones, you've had their voices and I'm still debating that not much is on paper from him, but you know, also the fact is what with him, I think it's all 99.9% a lie. So speaking of voices, actually, uh, when I was watching your, your Panzeram film, 
uh, a name came up in the credits that I was like, that name is familiar. And I got about halfway through and I was like, no, I have to look it up. And it's uh, Bender from Futurama. It's voiced yeah, in Pan's Yeah, who would think Bender would be? Right? Who would think he would be a, Bender would be a good serial killer? <laughs> Although I, I was but, able to uh, make use of the uh, Bender's kill all humans gif when I, when I told uh, my co-hosts. <laughs> Yes, that's awesome. That's perfect. But yeah, you know, John DiMaggio is awesome. And I always try and find, you know, a great voice, you know, or someone with a name, at least, you know, to be the narrator. And, you know, there was, I mean, Tony J had passed away, the narrator of my previous film. So I thought, well, just have Panzerham tell the story. And, you know, I got DiMaggio because I had heard him in, you know, obviously many animated shows and uh, you know, but I was looking for the gritty voice, you know, DiMaggio. So I think really Gears of War, the video game where he plays Marcus Phoenix, really clinched it for me. I'm like, this guy's great. So I contacted his agent and uh, we did it. So that was fun. Yeah, his voice was really, I think, it really drove home that feeling of, of brutality that I think you probably should get from Panzram. So it really captured the feeling. He did, he did a phenomenal job. Well, thank you. Yeah. And that's the thing too. Like, you know, when I had auditions for Albert Fish, I'd get, I'd get men doing Grandpa Simpson. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, that I, I don't see Albert Fish. Hi, little girl. You know, it's like, I, I needed someone with this nasty, the voice has to reflect the character. So, you know, I was lucky I found, you know, uh, the great actor, you know, that did the voice for Fish. So now, one interesting thing about Panzeram that where where he does something that I really have yet to see in you know uh, all the the criminals I've looked at, he uh, went out after he escaped and he bought a yacht. <laughs> yeah, man, this guy lived high on the hog. You know, I mean, he was a character. I mean, you know, I, you know, someone who he arrived at the Oregon Salem, Oregon jail. He was abused. He caused changes there because the warden hosed him down and he was all black and blue and bruised up. That word got out to the governor. He fired the warden. So some early prison reforms, we have to give credit to Panzram because, you know, without these bad things happening to inmates, we wouldn't know. So um, then another warden comes in and the next warden tells Panzram, I hear you're the worst guy here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let you leave every day to go wherever you want at five o'clock, but as long as, you know, or, or leave at the mo in the morning and come back by five o'clock, you could leave. I'm going to open the doors of the prison and you just go out hmm. <laughs> and Panzerim would do it. And it worked for a while because the warden figured, well, you beat this guy. It hasn't been working. So let's try something different. Let's try to trust him and see if that works. Well, eventually Panzerim didn't come back because he stayed out with a nurse and but so anyway, you know, when he was out one of these times uh, before, I think it was before Danamora, he broke into former President Taft's house and stole bonds from his house. So there are a lot of historical figures in here. And uh, he bought a yacht, the Aquista. And supposedly he would use that yacht to go to New York and, you know, port off of some of these cities and pick up sailors, have them work for him. And he would say he would rape them, shoot them and throw them overboard. And again, how do you prove that? You know, there probably were many missing people in New York at that time period. So, yeah, it seems like that could have been the moment when he could have been, you know, the, that that seemed like a moment where the two roads diverged in a woods there, and one of them could have led to freedom for him, but yeah, he went the yeah. other way. 
that's what I mean. We, you know, sometimes these criminals are so stupid. There are points where it's like, man, you know, you could just go wherever you want and do what you want. But, you know, he, he couldn't stay away from it. And it's funny, when you look at his mugshot when he was captured after that, when he had that yacht, his mugshot for Sing Sing, it's in the film, he's wearing the uh, tuxedo with his bow tie. And I'm like, wow, he was really, you know, for a criminal, he traveled the world. He, had, you know, uh, he was worldly. He knew about the news when he was in prison. He requested the uh, Christian Science Monitor and the Saturday evening news or whatever. But, you know, he was and, you know, those were things, too. I think he was up with the news and times so that it's hard to prove if he says, oh, yeah, look at that Saturday evening times from this date. There's a picture of me. Well, there's a picture of a guy with Africans, but you can't see his face. <laughs> so it's like, is that him? Did Panzeram just read that and say, oh, I'm going to remember this? You know, who knows? You know? Yeah, he's a really a very unique serial killer. I mean, they all have their uniqueness, but his his definitely tends to go into... The, the things that that really raise eyebrows almost in a fun way like at, at least on the surface the you know stealing bonds from president taft and yeah. get, you know buying a yacht at least you know in, until you get to the point where he's you know r- raping and killing sailors it's 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 almost yeah. kind of quirky and fun then you get to that point you know where the bad stuff starts happening and it's not but <laughs> Well, you know, that's, it's, I, uh, last, well, actually not last year, right before COVID hit, um, I had went to a, uh, to see Goodfellas. They had it on the big screen and, you know, I always loved it and laughed at it, but I realized, especially this time that the film is an absurd comedy because I'm finding that with Gacy because it's like, how can Gacy steal one of his victim's car, change the VIN number forge his signature and then the police it comes to the police attention of the other kid that gacy gave it to and then gacy pays the gas pill that this new kid that has a car you know took off and he didn't pay the gas so the police let them both go and tell them oh destroy those old plates it's obvious it's almost like the police were saying oh we know what you're doing but here's a a carte blanche dinner for you it's like, how is this the absurdity of these things? You ask, wait, did this really happen? Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah, Gacy is one of those cases where there's, I haven't delved into it too much, uh, but there there's a couple of frustrating points I know of where it, it, things could have gone in a different direction if, if the police would have done their work and they didn't and things go in a, a horrifying direction. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, there's at least half a dozen to a dozen of those times people don't know them all but there are a lot of them unfortunately (laughs) oh that's that's horrifying but also now i want you to hurry up and finish your film (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly i'm I'm doing my best (laughs) no pressure or anything (laughs) so let's uh let's actually let's talk about i want to talk a little bit about henry lesser he's such a fascinating person this this guard who was the one who showed Pans Ram some some compassion and and helped him you know gave him a dollar gave him a, a pencil and paper to write down his story we don't we don't see too many people like this in history 
No, that's true. You know, Henry Lester was a very uh, progressive person, young. He, I think he was 26 at the time, very forward-minded. You know, he was very humanistic, wanted to help people. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, he probably chose the worst job someone could. You know, it, you're talking about a job where, you know, you have to have loyalty to your other jail guards, you know, or officers, even if they're doing bad things. And it's a very, he, you know, I mean, even Panzram told him to quit that job. He said it, it didn't suit him. So, um, you know, and eventually, you know, he did. But, yeah, you know, for him to do that, that's it's one of these things like, you know, in true crime history that the the meeting of those two, you know, because without Henry Lesser, we wouldn't have all those original handwritten papers of Panzram, which are at San Diego State University. And anyone could walk in and, you know, look at these papers themselves and, you know, in front of their eyes. So, um, you know, Henry Lesser was is the big hero of the story you know he held on to those papers for 40 years and then they eventually re released a book in the 70s called killer journal of murder and henry lesser is not even thanked in that book wow yeah. oh that's infuriating yeah. yeah it is but you know you know that's a whole nother show when you start getting into corporate and you know the business of this stuff you know that these things happen like that but yeah he he really is the hero of the story and then uh, you know, Joel Goodman, who was also at San Diego State University when Henry Lesser came to speak there, I think it was in the uh, 80s, um, Henry Lesser had given him a lot of his research material. So then Joel Goodman had let me use a lot of that for my film. So again, you know, all of us working together and some of those documents are in my book, Panzram at Leavenworth, because I found the original killer book used Robert Stroud's writings about Panzram as the premise for the Leavenworth section of the book. Now, you, it's really hard to believe one person's criminal's writing on another because Robert Stroud was right across the cell from Panzram um, in solitary. But I had access to the federal papers on Panzram, which the authors of the killer book didn't. So they didn't, you know, there were unknowns there that they were basing off of Stroud or assuming. So that's why I said, I have to put on another book with these documents so people could find out what really happened. Yeah, it seems like I always feel like when I'm finishing up a case and again, you know, obviously we're, we're on a shorter timeline and it's, you know, a matter of because sometimes it's a scramble, but I feel like. I'm always like, oh, what if I missed something really important, you know, or what if there's some document that's out there that I just skipped past that has like those little details or something. And it's this constant fear and nagging anxiety. And it, it happened to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it happens a lot, you know, and it happens with me, you know, I, on all these cases, you know, I, I, it gets to a madness point, like obsession where it's just, you know, so going so in depth. And I think those are the times, like you said, where I may also have to step back. So it's just the enormity of, you know, trying to, you know, deal with all those details of where they happen. It's like, okay, I just got to take a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about, so you have a, a series uh, and a movie called Serial Killer Culture. And uh, these are about people who either collect serial killer art, memorabilia, they call it murderabilia, people who are actually in the, the what we could call, I guess, the serial killer arts. Although I have to say I got really clever, I think, and came up with the term the inhumanities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have people who, and I mean, 
it, it very much felt in watching this like I'm not allowed to criticize anyone because <laughs> I have not one but two true crime podcasts. <laughs> well, that's true, you know, and as I was making my films, uh, the biographies on serial killers, I had met many people in the serial killer culture, obviously, because I'm making films on them. So I had met musicians, uh, murder junkies, uh, you know, Merle Allen, Gigi Allen's brother and, you know, artists and forensic psychologists, you know. To me, it all falls under serial killer culture. Catherine Ramsland is a forensic psychologist. She's also an author. She fits in that, you know, uh, category. You do, you do crime, crime, uh, you know, podcasts on true crime. So, you know, you're part of the culture. So, you know, it's pretty broad, you know, as far as, as I consider it, like artists, you know, even, you know, even uh, law enforcement officials, you know, so it, it could be anything from, you know, a collector to an author to an expert or a museum or an entity, you know, that has items, you know, like Ripley's with Peter Curtin's head. So I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I know all these people. Why don't I just start interviewing them and, and you know, put it together in a film, which people loved. And then I did the series, which I do want to continue. You know, I'm trying to get back to third season, but I'm working on Gacy. But uh, so that's what it was. The film was featured 13 people and it was like, interviews ranging from five to 15 minutes each. But then the TV show basically focuses on one person. So you get about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of one person, you know, like you're just sitting there. Some people I've heard say it's boring. Well, you know what? I don't care because how many times do you actually feel like you get to sit across from Gacy's psychiatrist? And that's what it is. It's almost like you're sitting in front of these people and they're telling you their story. And that's what I wanted it to be. You know, treat these people with respect. Let their story get out. You know, uh, Manson's friend, Michael Channels, he loved the interview because he'd said he'd been burned by, you know, companies that would re-edit and make him look foolish. And, you know, I want to make sure that I respect these people that are involved in the culture, but also have them tell their stories. The one I think that was the most uh, affecting for me was uh, the survivor of Jonestown. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, wrenching. You know, because, yeah, you know, and that's the thing. It's, it's. And I'm finding this with the Gacy film, too. It's very difficult to find, uh, you know, survivors or family members of survivors, number one. Number two, to get them to participate. Um, you know, and I'm very, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm just very understanding of that. So, you know, I don't push things, you know, as far as, you know, respect to people and their relatives. But yeah, I was filming at San Diego State and they had an exhibit of Jonestown. And that's when I talked to, uh, you know, the person who ran the special collections, Rob Ray. And, you know, he got me in touch with Laura. And uh, yeah, that was just, I mean, yeah, you know, it's sad, sad to think, you know, and, and that would happen, you know, the news of that hit right before Gacy, literally a week or two. So just imagine the news that month in December of 78, you hear 900 some people kill themselves. Now all these young boys are being pulled out of a crawl space. That time period was tough, you know. Yeah, it must have been very, very dark reading the news, opening up the newspaper every day, just, you know, <laughs> not a great way to start the day with your coffee. Yeah. But, you know, to hear it again from a survivor, to to hear what it was like, to hear exactly why and how, like you said earlier, why and how did she survive? Well, she was sent to Georgetown and she was there when all the murders were going down. So, you know, it's uh, 
it, again, I, you know, and, and survivors too, they fall within that category of the culture too, because they are part of it. They have books, they're telling their stories. So. Yeah. And especially, I think it's especially important to hear from them because just like with, you know, it, it's inevitable that with stories of serial killers and, and mass murders and the like, there's going to be a huge focus on the perpetrator, but especially with Jonestown when we have so many tapes of Jim Jones and <sighs> it's it's just really difficult to listen to, but it's also very riveting at the same time to hear from the, you know, a survivor and I would say, you know, a victim, you know, that at the same, I think that is, is hugely important when we can do it. I agree. I, I spoke with, uh, actually, I think yesterday, or a day or two ago, I spoke with a survivor, a Gacy survivor sister, you know, one of the victims, sisters. I mean, the yeah, dead victim, uh, but the sister's obviously at least alive. And, you know, she, she made one important point. You know, I could tell these things in my documentary, but when you're telling it from, when a person is telling it from real life experience, that's another thing. Because she said she went down to the courtroom every day with her mother, and her mother said she made, made it a point to go every day because she wanted to show people that her son was normal. Because when that was going on, people were saying, well, what Gacy did to gays is what they deserve. So she said she wanted to go down to make sure she let people know that her son was normal. He was a human being. Yeah, that's, wow. I mean, just the idea of the, the culture, you know, basically blaming the victim so hard right, back then. Right. It's, yeah, it's you know. awful. Yeah. And then again, that's what's important about these time periods. You know, it's it's hard for people to look back at certain time periods and say, oh, it was like that then. And it was. And and that's why I have to put it in context. But that's why, you know, you you that's why I try to interview people who were around at that time period or, you know, knew someone or, or whatever it is, you know, as many close connections as I could get to the case. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I feel like. Okay, so the, the story, you mentioned it earlier, the, the BTK investigators uh, who looked to the H.H. Holmes, the, the audience for that uh, as, a, as a potential investigative avenue because they figured out that this person really liked H.H. Uh, H. Holmes. I feel like that's a fear we all have, like, oh, God, what if they looked at my browser history? <laughs> <laughs> of course, we all talk about that. You know, man, they have me so many things, you know, it's like, because when I'm researching Gacy, of course, I have to, you know, type in, uh, you know, asphyxiation and, you know, young male and all this stuff, man, they would, they'd put me away forever. But you're right. When it's true crime writers, I'm sure they know, they, I hope they know, <laughs> they know that. But I guess in the old days, they would look and see what library books you took out of the library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. That, that's that's really just along the same lines but yeah i think that hearing that all of our brains kind of like ping a little bit and we're like oh oh so crap (laughs) that could happen (laughs) yeah it it could happen you know so it's like yeah you know it's always interesting i mean i i you know i've never really found myself in any you know weird strange situation like that but it's i just love you know i i really miss the um conventions and and, you know meeting people face to face because of what's going on now but you know it'll be together soon and i'm gonna be up and running in line within the next couple months so i'll have you know some sort of a show out there where like in the past what i've done um I, I have a live show like on Facebook that and if people purchase something, I sign it live and then they also get the video too. So I'm probably going to start doing that in a couple months. 
Oh, cool. That's really neat. That's a great idea. Yeah, because they, yeah, they actually get, it's almost like a live convention in a sense where they get to see it and keep the video of me signing it. Plus they have the actual product. So, Yeah. Um, I think we've really hit pretty much, uh, everything, even like my, my closing up questions, we managed to hit those along the way. Very, very efficient. Awesome. <laughs> you know, in the future, I'm, I'm more than happy to come on, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're a great, you know, host because, you know, you actually research your material, you're talking, you know, the material and, uh, anytime, you know, if you do, you know, spotlights on anyone I've done or want to, you know, just want me to jump on sometime, let me know. I'm more than happy. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be ca calling you in for when we do Pans Ram because I think that would be a really fascinating episode. Yeah, that would be fun. And I might be able to get Joel Goodman. He was the, uh, student who met Henry Lesser. So he'd, he'd be more than happy to come on too. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. Oh, we're, we're, we're making plans. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we're making plans. This is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Absolutely. So your next project, so you're working on Gacy right now, you said? Yes, I'm working on uh, Gacy as either, I'm still not sure if it's going to be a film or a two-part film or a miniseries. I'm still working on the length of it now. I'm also working on a serial killer uh, adult activity book with uh sam hain which is shane owen who's a great artist he does a lot of serial killer artwork he was actually in serial killer culture the movie so i'm working on those couple projects right now you know um don't want to spread myself too thin because gacy is really like the center focus right now yeah there's there's i'm sure an absolute lot to tackle there well, you know, I tell, I've been telling friends lately, I think for my next serial killer, I'm going to select one that killed one, like two or three, you know, <laughs> not 33. Yeah, that's probably, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a little palate cleanser. <laughs> well, you know, because I didn't realize that, of course, you know, I'm in and I, I don't mind. It's not more, more work. It's not that, but it's like, you know, there is, you know, obviously that just means so much more detail than which, which is fine with me, you know, but uh, yeah, it's all good. You know, I'm enjoying the process. There are ups and downs, but I'm learning a ton about the case. Like, I, I mean, at this point, I mean, and I'm don't really pat myself on the back much, but I can't imagine someone who would know more about Gacy than me. Recently, I found out a, uh, a little tidbit and I asked the two people in the world that I think would know who are Gacy experts and they didn't know. And I'm like, oh, I found something new here. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all good. And, and uh, uh, I'm happy to be on and I'm, I'd love to be on again. That would be great. We would love it. Um, okay. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great time. Thank you for having me. I uh, loved it and uh, can't wait to be on again. Great. Fantastic. So there are links to John Borowski's films and other pertinent links to like his website. Uh, the, the, the Gacy, the John Wayne Gacy film has uh, a Facebook page, the, the art, the cover art for that. I don't know if that's finalized or not, but that is something that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so yes, you can find him in, uh, in the show notes or just go to Amazon. And, you know, like I, I think I just typed in Borowski on Amazon prime and you started coming up in your various, your various films. So that worked too. <laughs> Awesome. Perfect. So, all right, listeners, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview with filmmaker John Borowski, and you can look forward to uh, these popping up in your feed occasionally in the future. So thank you for listening to our filthy words, as we like to say here, and goodbye. <laughs>